My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Jody Wolkerling. She is the author of World Class Leadership, soon to be released. After teetering on the edge of burnout, she looked towards building her resilience. On her journey, Jody became a success principal certified trainer, health and life coach, and neuro-linguistic programming practitioner. She has since paired those skills with her corporate knowledge and understanding of leadership. This paved the way for her to help others overcome their resilience challenges and cultural barriers in their workplaces. Thank you so much for for allowing me to interview you, Jody. And uh, you're in Victoria, Australia. Certainly am. Um, so the um, southern eastern part of Australia. So thank you for having me on, David. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to, before we get into your book and, and what you're known for, I, I wanted to get kind of a feeling um, for your life growing up, maybe some of your influences. Were you, were you born and raised there in Victoria? Um, born in Victoria, spent, um, traveled around a fair bit um, as, as part of my Grow up, growing up and lived in various parts in Australia, um, but I kind of ended up in my adulthood going back to Victoria. So, yeah. And for higher education, um, can, can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe the major course of your studies and really your, your early professional life? Yep. Yeah, so, um, pretty much straight out of uh, secondary school. Um, I took a gap year and then I did a Bachelor of Arts in um, majoring in uh, sociology um, and philosophy and psychology. So interesting, many, many years ago background and then did a teaching qualification. So um, unfortunate timing because when I qualified as a teacher the same year, the um, Premier who's the head of our state um, closed a lot of schools so I came out at the end of the teaching qualification where there was a lot of unemployed teachers and very few jobs so my life ended up going down a different road than secondary teaching so and and is that really what led you into the corporate world yes so what it meant is I went into um, look for alternative jobs um, basically my first kind of serious job was was as a quality assurance um, manager and that was when um, I don't know if ISO 9000 was big with you guys in America but I was um, one of the people when it was big here basically working on that um, within a business which was a great opportunity as a young adult so yeah that was working through the the business and and 
they did it as a way of improving all of the systems. So I had quite a lot of, um, it, it, was such, it was a very good foundation for me uh, collaborate, collaborating and working with people and getting an idea of the effect of systems and carry on effects and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. And, and so that kind of led you into, uh, I'm, I'm guessing just by, by reading some of your bio, um, you ended up possibly in a managerial role or executive role where you led teams and that sort of thing? Yeah, so that role was a was an executive role. It was a quality assurance manager. I didn't, with that one, I didn't have any staff answering to me, but it was a position of um, sort of authority and, and influence and responsibility. So, yeah. Um, Interesting, as I said, good opportunity as a, as a young adult to actually be able to go through to that sort of role. Well, what, what led you toward really the, the self-development that, that um, I've read about and I believe what you've written about in your book, um, you, you talk about resilience and and really learning how to be more resilient yourself? So um, I've held various positions throughout my career, but they were generally positions of um, authority, responsibility, and, and often people leading positions. Um, now, while I could do all of those for a lot of my career, I really um, felt in myself the negative effects of stress. Um, and obviously that goes up and down, peaks and troughs as different circumstances and, and things that happen, but it was a constant through most of my career. So a few years back, um, I reached a point where I didn't burn out, but I think I was very, very close to it. And I was in a stage where it was, um, I was in a state of, of stress and it was affecting me physically. I had certain physical symptoms. Um, it was affecting things like relationships. It was affecting, there wasn't the, the, the stress Jody and the relaxed Jody. There was basically this constant on edge. Um, so it was really not a, a quality of life stage to be in. Um, and it was almost as if that was a light bulb moment for me. I call them light bulb moments where there or, or aha moments where you go, something occurs to you that should have occurred to you years before, but it didn't. But it was basically there has to be something better than this. This is not quality of life. So that started me on a path of really working on myself. And, and going through various educations and self-development to first of all find what it was in me and develop um, myself so that I was in a much better place in myself and that kind of progressed from there to helping other people and then helping leaders and helping businesses. And, and part of the introduction I, I introduce you as a success principles certified trainer what it, it seems like the the success principles is maybe a, a certifying organization so are you familiar with jack canfield uh, i know that name i not really familiar with what what he does most people if you say chicken soup for the soul they go ah so okay. he, he 
and Mark Victor Hansen are the chicken soup for the soul guys. Um, but but Jack is also very well known for, he has a book, um, The Success Principles, which is one of the best books I've ever read. Um, and in my development, that was one of the early ones that I read and went, my gosh, there are some huge insights in this. And when he talks about stress, people think, sorry, not stress, about success, people think success around making money and positions of power and all that sort of stuff. He doesn't look at it that way. It can be that, but it's your definition of where you want your life to be. He classes that as success. So to me, it's self-development and self-empowerment is kind of the core message of it. So as I said, I read the book and kind of went, this is fantastic, give me more, and then did the course where I um, became certified in training in training it so it's based on on jack canfield was it was the main teacher um and it's based on his success principles so yeah and what exactly is a neuro-linguistic programming practitioner <laughs> good question so um this is a an area that a lot of life coaches um have studied in it's basically working on um so the neuro is, is brain and linguistic is language. So it's a lot of um, processes and um, a philosophy that works to a lot of that subconscious part of the brain, a lot of automatic things that people do that they aren't aware of. And it goes from very simple things um, like, gosh, what's one of the simple things that, that it went through? Um, eye patterns. So when people are... Um, processing and if you watch their eyes their eyes dart to various areas depending on what part of the brain that they're using so awareness around and around that sort of stuff um, to some of the really more complicated um, things like so one of the the thing the the areas that we learned was working through some serious childhood um childhood traumas or, or basically the origin of um, behaviours or, or emotions in your life that you don't want to be a constant factor and, and working through processes to get to the subconscious um, origin of that with the idea of basically getting to it and overturning the effect of it on your life later on. It's really quite um, fascinating and as, as it goes from from very basic things and and I don't want to be constantly eating ice cream so you do certain patterns to to stop you having that craving and that sort of stuff but it goes uses language and goes to the subconscious um, neuro part of the brain it's quite interesting in your work right now when you are helping individuals or organizations develop um, resilience what what do you specifically define resilience as it's it's such a good place to to define because how do we know what we're working towards unless we, we have a definition of it so i look at resilience um as two main parts of it so here i'm talking primarily about personal resilience so the first part is staying 
calm in yourself as much as possible when things, because we all have stresses in our life, when stresses happen, um, to stay calm as much as possible. And there's various things that you can do in your life to help you enhance that kind of well-being. But the other side of it is there's very few people in the world that live in that state of, of zen and peace 24 hours a day, seven days a week, very few. So we nearly all have um, things that cause us stresses, things that we're dealing with that are karyotis from years ago. Um, basically working with people in, okay, if they are feeling stressed, one, recognising that as, as quickly as possible, because I think self-awareness is kind of halfway there. If you're not aware of it, you can't do much about um, overturning it or, or, or working towards something better. So awareness around it and then how to bring yourself back to that calm, in control, logical state as quickly as possible. So um, that's from a personal point of view. From leaders, um, very much it's the same thing. Leaders um, need to develop their personal resilience. They're, they're an individual like anybody else. And from an organisational point of view, it's around working on things that have been known to cause um, stress in their staff and um, working on basically systems, processes, education, development leaders, that sort of stuff, so that those are um, minimised or removed so that the staff don't, don't experience the stresses anywhere near as much. And, and how do you consciously and systematically build resilience into culture? Because, uh, you know, you're talking about working with leadership and, and their staff. For that for those behaviors that you teach them, for them to stick, you've, you've got to really work towards shifting the culture so that it kind of support, everybody supports one another. But how, how do you reach that level? Yeah, such a good question. The first step always with businesses is to get a really accurate picture of what's going on because there's certain patterns and certain things that cause problems and certain things that... Um, that help address that, but how that manifests and what the problems are for each organisation is different. So the first step is to really get an accurate picture of what's going on. Um, now, most businesses traditionally do that through things like engagement surveys. Um, that is part of the toolkit, but is nowhere near the full toolkit because there's certain issues with engagement surveys around people not being um, really honest for various reasons in in their um, wording the way even the wording of the questions can make enormous difference to the outcome that you get so um the so engagement surveys I, I basically in getting a snapshot of businesses you look at qualitative stuff and quantitative stuff so engagement surveys definitely fits under the quantitative other things under the quantitative are, are general patterns within the business so things like staff turnover things like um, productivity statistics. A lot of the time it's, it's quantitative stuff that businesses collect and know already. The qualitative side is often where the real insights, in my opinion, come from. So that is having um, 
very in-depth conversations with key people in the business. And that's not just your, your C-suite, CEO, CFO, higher end of the business, but basically people throughout the whole organisation um, in a situation with a practitioner where there is a, a level of trust and anonymity. Um, and often those conversations are where you get some of the best insights of what's actually going on, what are the pain points, what are what are the stresses, what's, what's actually going on in this organisation. And even doing things like... Um, observations so watching a team and watching the dynamics of how they relate to each other and most people it's it's a strange concept for people but if you say okay you've walked into a a um a room whether that's family friends work whatever and they've two minutes before you walked in had a big argument most people will pick up, I call it the vibes, pick up the vibes of that. Um, so observations will often pick up the vibes of what's actually going on within the team dynamic if you really pay attention to how people relate to each other, what tones they use, body language, um, how they relate to customers, um, yeah, all sorts of all sorts of things. So the first snapshot with, with businesses is always to... Um, work out what's actually going on and what are, what are the pain points um, because again if as I said in terms of personal stuff if you don't know what the problem is you can't really address it so and then there's various ways of kind of addressing it once you know what's going on. When you define work-related resilience how do you differentiate or support larger systemic issues versus an individual's ability to self-care or provide self-maintenance? Yep, um, they're both important, um, simply because the individual within the organization, um, the, the more sort of centered and resilient they are in themselves, the better they handle the things that are going on. Um, but it's almost like a, a the, the individual, it's about working one-on-one -on -one with that individual or in, in training and dealing with teaching them around what are some of the things that happen from, a, from an individual managing your own resilience point of view. From a, from a business at large point of view, again, you, you, it's normally systematic and more widespread. So it's patterns. Um, so that could be patterns throughout the whole organisation. It could be patterns in certain teams or departments. So it's more, um, more global. And you can pick the difference because um, just say, for example, there's a, there's a team of, of 10 people and there is one particular person in the team who is consistently feeling stressed. That's sort of something to, to work on with that individual person. If you have a team of, of 10 people, and you have um, certain patterns that are emerging. So just say high absenteeism or um, a drop in productivity over time or various things. That's when patterns and that's when you're talking about there's a larger scale cultural organisational team based problem. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you're working with with companies and and you're identifying these patterns that you're going to address what are some of the major behaviors or workplace norms that you 
um, come across that you identify as problematic that that you um, need to address yep. directly? Yeah, so there's there's quite a lot of them. Um, probably probably the 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 one of the most um, common ones and one of the most um, impactful ones is psychological safety, whether it's there or not. And it's, it's a bit of a buzz term that you hear at the moment, but most people kind of go, yes, that's important, but kind of don't know a lot about it. So psychological safety is a culture where people feel safe to voice their opinion. If um, even if that opinion is different to everybody else or different to, to their leader or whatever, people feel face, feel safe to innovate. So to um, think, is there a better way of doing this? Is there, is, it, is there a new product? Is there a new process? Is there a new whatever? Um, they feel safe to learn and develop themselves. Um, so that can be through um, education or it can be trying a different um a different role that they didn't previously do so basically developing themselves with obviously with developing yourself there's always a risk of um not doing something as well as the next person or failing at it or having to persist over a period of time before you become competent um where you have a, a, a situation where people feel safe to do all of those things you get those results, you get innovation, you get collaboration, you get um, productivity, you get people putting up their hand to develop and try new things. Um, and the opposite of that is there's not psychological safety, you get people almost siloing themselves and being in protective mode. So they will only do or say or behave in a way that feels safe. Um, and and that's a, it's an almost natural natural human instincts so psychological there's lots of others but psychological safety is a big one because it makes an enormous difference um, in in the organization how the the team and the culture um, works do you have any other examples of of problems that, yep. that you and your team address yep so um simple things like um people want to feel that they are supported, valued and cared for. It sounds so simple, but um, having either as an individual leader point of view or as an organisational point of view, ways that, that you can um, develop a, a almost um, undercurrent of care and support makes an enormous difference. And, and it's one of those things that can be derailed very quickly um, and takes a long time to, to build up. Other things are things like um, people at their core, whether they sort of consciously realise it in themselves or not, they want to be part of a bigger purpose. Um, and this is kind of labelled now as, as almost a millennial or, or younger thing, but I, I would actually disagree with that. It's pretty much all age groups. People want to be part of a bigger purpose. Um, and if you have a bigger purpose in your organisation, it, it pretty much helps engagement and helps people to realise that I'm, I'm part of a larger, a, a larger um, greater purpose. And it's, it's funny, people go, well, hang on, I, I, I 
it's a business business example. We work as, as a, a hardware store selling hardware parts. Why is me um, working as the person who restocks shelves? Why, why is that a purposeful thing? Just as an example. But really, if it is, is spelled out, what's the greater purpose? Well, it could be with something like a hardware store. We help empower people to be able to um, create their environment um, in, the, in the way that they want and to develop their skills in, in working on that in a way that is um, cost-effective and educational. I've got pick, pick that, just pick that out of my brain, <laughs> as opposed to we sell nails and screws. Right. Um, so really defining that purpose and that purpose being a, a key part of the ongoing culture of the business becomes extremely um, important because, as I said, whether people realise it or not, they want to be part of a bigger purpose and they want to know that their role in that purpose is important. It's very easy for people to forget that. But the bottom line is in pretty much any organisation, unless your role is important, you wouldn't be there doing it. So, as I said, the hardware store example, the person who stocks the shelves, well, why is that important? Well, it means that the next time customer X walks and wants to buy part Y, it's sitting here on the shelf waiting for them. Um, it sounds really simple, but, but a lot of this stuff is really simple, but it's quite often missed. So, and that, yeah, there's all sorts of though, the way people relate to each other, things like um, people having a feeling of security in their business, um, people feeling that there's a work-life balance and some sort of um, understanding of where that where their work fits in the rest of their life, um, realistic demands. So that's demands in terms of time or performance indicators or that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of them that can make an enormous difference. Now, I'm, I'm wondering, early on in your career, or well, what led you on this journey to develop your own uh, resilience? At that time, when you were approaching burnout, did, did you feel as though you were being supported by the organization you you were working for well that's dangerous because there's people who know <laughs> at that stage <sighs> reality no um it's just dangerous because there's people i'm still in contact with who are involved at that stage well no. the reason the reason i i ask is because i i feel as though a lot of organizations with turnaround you you'll find that those people that are leaving the organization are were either approaching burnout themselves had reached burnout or had witnessed their peers experiencing burnout and could readily identify the similarities like well if i stick around as long as they have i'm going to be just like that so they find some place else now a lot of that is when people don't feel as though they're being supported, they, they don't feel valued, they don't have the resources that are available in the industry, 
to help them do their job more efficiently. Those kind of things that that show, like, yes, your job matters to us. You're valuable. We want you to have all of the best tools to make life easier on you. And if you need help with whatever, if you need somebody, an assistant or a team or whatever it may be, if those resources are provided, that is a tangible event or process or just something tangible that the business provides for the employees. And you end up with what you were talking about, people that feel like they're a part of something something bigger than them. And uh, you get more buy-in and more productivity. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? But so many organizations miss it, but you're absolutely correct. And and the thing is, um, you could, one thing that you said there you, 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 I'd like to highlight is that if people feel, so when they're in those positions where they're feeling not in a great state, and that can be stress, it can be family issues, it can be health, it can be a whole range of things. If they're not feeling great and they are supported through that, you end up generally with um, engaged, loyal employees. And you will also end up with engaged, loyal employees by the people who witness what's going on. So um, an example that I've seen in the past um, with this was um, a lady who had cancer, had to, take, had to take time off work basically for cancer treatment. Um, and she said down the track, she said, the only time they really checked on me was basically to find out when I'd be well enough to come to work. She said, I felt so uncared for and unsupported in that process. So it disengaged her and it disengaged everybody else who saw it or she had relationships within in the business. And it's, yeah, it's not rocket science, but it is so often missed. So when you're coaching individuals that are in an environment like that, and they're approaching burnout, how do you coach them in developing uh, their their own personal resilience? Yep. So I I work with people on three levels, and I find um, level one and level two apply to pretty much anyone, and level three um, is is applies to most people, but definitely to people who who have stress as a repeated issue in their life so level one um, is if you are feeling stressed recognizing it in yourself and there are certain processes or things that you can do that go straight to the physiological response of stress because stress is actually there's a lot of physiological things that happen um, go straight to the physiological uh, reaction to stress and helps overturn it so they're often very quick and easy to learn and people find them quite fun to learn. So things like um, belly breathing is, is probably the, the most common one that works for more people than any of the others. None of them work for everybody. It's an individual kind of thing, but nearly everybody will find something that works for them, if that makes sense. So deep belly breathing um, is you, you basically sit upright and you breathe from the bottom of your lungs and you can tell you're doing that because your belly goes 
in and out when you breathe. Um, and if you're breathing from the top of the, your lungs, which is not what you want, your shoulders generally go up and down. So you want your shoulders to stay still, belly goes in and out, and you breathe at a very slow pattern. The pattern that I normally recommend to people is in for four, out for six, and you repeat that for a couple of minutes. And it sounds so simple, but it actually goes to that physiological response to um, that automatic physiological response. It overturns it um, and helps bring you back to that state of calm. And there's other ones. So um, things like um, the one that works the best on me is, is this one. So you're basically almost giving yourself a, a, a rub and a hug. And I can feel the effect on that and me just doing that. <laughs> so, and there's a whole group of other ones that, that go to the physiology of, of resetting that stress response. So that's the first level. The second level um, is there are certain lifestyle things and certain mindset things that make an enormous difference in stresses in your life and, and whether they affect you and the extent. So the three basics that make an enormous difference are um, sleep, diet, and exercise. Um, sleep's probably the best example because sleep's one of those things most people can relate if they're feeling stressed. Normally their stress, their sleep is affected. And the opposite is true. If they're not getting great sleep, they're normally um, more susceptible to feel the effects of stresses in their life. So so the, the lifestyle stuff, so as I said, sleep, diet and exercise, things like um, connections and relationships, work-life balance, um, finding time to do things that you love. Um, there's a whole range of lifestyle things that make a difference. And mindset, there's, there's ways that you, by default, think and process things about yourself and the world um, and mindset can make an enormous difference in in how you deal with different stresses or situations so that's level two level three is when i'm working one-on-one -on -one with clients whose stress is a is a major repeated issue this is where we spend the bulk of our time um, and this is working on the subconscious things that means that mean that you are more susceptible to feeling the effects of stresses on your life so they are the things that subconscious means people generally aren't aware of them. Um, and they'll often go back to um, things that have happened in the, in the formative years of your life, especially the first seven years of your life. And it can be fairly serious things, but it can also be not very serious things. What I mean by that is it could be, I don't know, your, your, um, your first grade teacher made an offhand remark about you not being very smart. So it can be one person making a 30-second comment can be something that imprints in your brain that says, I'm not very smart. Um, so it can be and from, from that to fairly serious um, trauma or neglect or, or abuse um, as well. So, yeah, most people have subconscious things that... Um, it, it determines a lot of their behaviour, it determines a lot of their automatic responses um, and a lot of those things that they have absolutely no conscious awareness of. Um, and it's probably the most rewarding thing I do working with people because you can, if you work on this stuff and you actually really get to the heart of it and overturn the effect of it, um, it can make an enormous difference to people's 
lives. So as a coach, I find it the probably the most rewarding thing that I, I do working with people. That's, that's incredible. One of the things that you said about uh, level two um, with, with lifestyle, uh, sleep, diet, and exercise, and healthy relationships, and the relationship that you have with yourself, which I, I recently, well, actually the, the interview that I did last week, one of the things that we talked about, and I, I haven't edited the episode yet, so I, I'm not, not exactly sure if it was recorded or not because our conversation went on long after we stopped recording. But one of the things that we talked about was how we treat ourselves and how so many times, and, and you mentioned this about things that may have happened in your childhood in those formative years that, that shaped how we view ourselves. And those behaviors continue on into adulthood and you know it can it can actually be beneficial in some cases on the through the lens of somebody that's very nearsighted you know in the immediate term where maybe perfectionism is is something that um, you want out of your employer or what you want out of your yourself what is required of the job that you're doing um, getting things as perfect as possible. But if you're constantly telling yourself that you're an idiot or you, you know, you're constantly screwing things up, like, why did you do it like that? Oh, you're, and this negative self-talk can really affect your relationships as well. Because if you view yourself as this you know, person of low quality, then how could anybody else uh, really genuinely care about you? And if they are treating you nice, it's clearly because they want something from you. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of mindset that can lead you down the path of dysfunctional relationships, all of that stuff. And um, a, a lifestyle that's filled with stress. So I, I just thought it was, it was interesting that you would bring that up. And uh, I, I would guess that probably how you coach your people is to, to change that self-talk, to start telling yourself nice things. Absolutely. Um, one of my favourite, so we mentioned earlier about Jack Canfield, one of the things that he teaches, which I find as a great um, exercise to do with people is um, basically you talk to yourself in the mirror and tell yourself what a good job you're doing and, and um, that, that you basically you say to yourself, I love you. Um, and this is something that if you are 
if you don't have that thought of I'm capable and lovable and I'm doing a great job, it is extremely uncomfortable. But persisting with things like that over, over a period of time actually works to that subconscious. So it almost has to become a habit over a period of time to really overturn that. But you're absolutely spot on. So the messages you tell yourself, the, the default interpretations of things that go along, go around, on around you, makes an enormous difference and, and the example that you just gave of um if somebody's nice to me they must want something from me it's funny it sounds my reaction to that is that sounds really sad but it is it's it's uh it's a it's one of those default behaviors and default thought patterns that that some people have um yeah, it's interesting. It, it's and the NLP comes into this too. So so going to a lot of that core um, origin of where these these um, opinions and perceptions um, came from. Well, I know from personal experience that telling somebody to look at themselves in the mirror and tell themselves nice things is something that I've heard for quite some time and just thought it was ridiculous and never did it until recently because I was just, I was beating myself up day in and day out. And uh, this amazing woman that I met told me to knock it off and, and like, just try and be nice to yourself. You wouldn't, you wouldn't say the stuff that you say to yourself, to your daughter you know, to try and get her to do something better. Like, why do you do it to yourself? And I was like, uh, why don't you talk to yourself like you talk to your daughter and see if things don't get better. And so I took a little bit of time one day and I felt ridiculous doing it, but oh my God, I felt so amazing afterwards. <laughs> it was ridiculous. I'm like, all these years. I could have felt good. <laughs> I I've got pretty much the same sort of experience. It, it's just it's it's amazing. It's um, but it doesn't it feel so uncomfortable when you first start to do it? Oh yeah, feels like man. I hope nobody's. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah, it's it's such a simple it's it's such a simple exercise, but it is very very powerful. Yeah, yeah. So I. I would encourage all the listeners out there because I know like most everybody has that negative self-talk to some degree, you know, and, and I would think that my listeners, most of them are veterans and first responders, people in, you know, kind of, you know, these roles of, uh, rescuer or you know i'm i'm my my role in life is to make things better when people's lives are upside down i'm gonna go make them better so that means that i gotta be tough and i can't be you know going and talking to myself in the mirror i need to be tough naturally because i am that's but it just leads to this when you make a mistake you know why am i weak why am i this weak man uh, so 
yeah, I would encourage people to just try it. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. Um, I'm, I'm curious because I, I know that you don't just hone in on one industry and that's like your niche. I would imagine you you go, I, I don't know if you're international or not, but within Australia at, at least, there's a lot of different industries, but is there, um, is there a difference in how you approach developing these resilient cultures in, in different industries? It's interesting. There are certain similarities regardless of, of um, industry. So certain principles around things like the psychological safety and that sort of stuff. But there are certain things that are different in, in particular industries. So for example, industries that have um, a high level of regulation or, or government control um, have certain things that go with that. Industries where, like yourself, you're talking about first responders and, and um, people who are in either combative or, or rescuing type roles, there's certain stresses and, and, and issues that go with that. Um, and it's another example, things like um, educational roles, there's certain stresses that go with that. So while there's similarities, there are certain things that are different for different professions. So, so just say example of, of the stresses that an accountant faces every day and the things that are going to cause stress in him or her is going to be very different to the things that cause stress in a firefighter. Um, so yes, there are similarities, but there are differences that depending on the industries and depending on what, what circumstances or what, um, so what rules, what circumstances, what demands, what timeframes, um, what, what carry-on effects of your work are, um, depending on industries, definitely. Now, I'm, I'm not, well, actually, I'm not familiar with Australian culture at all. Uh, I've never been there. I would love to visit one day, but uh, I've yet to, to travel to uh, Australia. And I only know what I've heard. And I mean, it, it was when I was in the Navy, I heard things from people that um, I was serving with that had been to Australia, you know, what it was like in port and that kind of thing. So not really a good, um, uh, you know, a broad understanding of what culture is like uh, there in Australia. I know that in the United States, there is, um, there are organizations, there are industries that are typically male dominated. There's, you know, not a lot of women. And um, one of them is the fire service. And there's challenges in that and really trying to create a more inclusive culture because in my studies, and I'm sure 
you've come across the same information that um, regarding emotional intelligence, that it's the, the most important part of being viewed as an effective leader or being a successful leader is, you know, how well you function, you know, through your use of your emotional intelligence. And um, some of the pieces, and, I, and I've talked about this quite a, in quite a few different episodes, but with, with what I've read and what I've found is that women tend to be much better communicators, uh, more empathetic, better at creating and maintaining good relationships, you know, working relationships, that sort of thing. And um, what I've found is that those are the most important parts of good leadership. And those are the parts that women excel in. Yet in male dominated organizations, women aren't valued the same as men are. And I've also found that in organizations where there's this uh, macho type atmosphere, the you know, rugged masculinity is valued above all else, you know, like we gotta, there tends to be a different kind of leadership and one that doesn't really promote, um, you know, high performing teams. So I'm, I'm wondering, is there, is it similar there in Australia? Um, yes, <laughs> I, I I agree with what with what you're saying. I would actually add a little bit extra to it. Is even there's industries that are very female dominated, but even those industries a lot of the time at the higher end levels um, are disproportionately male dominated. So there's a real cultural thing. So for example, I used to be, I, work, I spent a fair bit of my working career in the banking industry. Um, at an operational level, very, very female dominated, where the organization I was in anyway, um, very female dominated. But that industry, if you go up to managerial levels, there is primarily males. There's some females, but primarily males. Um, Teaching is probably another example of that. Generally, there's a lot more female teachers than males. You go up to your principals and your district leaders and that sort of stuff, there's generally a lot more males than females. So you've made a really good point, I think, in that there needs to be, um, and there's various reasons for why that happens, but different needs to be a shift either in the males um, developing a lot of those emotional intelligence um, things, which I, when people ask me, what's one of your core, what's what's a core characteristic of a of a successful leader? And my response is generally emotional intelligence. So, in terms of from a cultural leadership point of view, um, so there needs to be a shift in terms of males developing that emotional intelligence and it not being a thing of weakness and it not being. Um, 
it being something that's that's just known as this is a feature of a good leader. So that's that side. But there also needs to be, as you've pointed out, a culture of valuing those more um, sort of traits that that females find easier generally than males because what's happened in the past and I think this is changing but what's happened in the past is the the females who did end up in those those higher managerial sort of more masculine type roles um, and you'd be able to 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 specify whether to say something like a female firefighter this applies to them as well um, that they almost had to adopt male characteristics in order to succeed in that environment. So it was almost not, they themselves didn't value what they brought to the table as authentically being themselves. Is that something that you found? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's really interesting because there's so many different factors that we could talk about that kind of, leads to that type of environment um and one of the things that that i've talked about uh, i've taught leadership for quite some time but when you're trying to change the culture it's got to be from the bottom up and from the top down and really working on but it, whatever the culture needs to shift to Whoever is leading that organization needs to take on that leadership role and really lead through their actions and embody those values that they're trying to say, this is what is valuable to this organization. But if they don't embody it, it's just lip service. Absolutely. And the term that I use fairly regularly is leader set the tone. The leader sets the tone for the rest of the, the team, the organization, whatever. So you're absolutely correct. Now, I know that we're, we're running short on time, but before we go, I wanted to, to see if there was anything that we didn't touch on that, you know, you'd like to discuss or something that you, you feel is very important that we need to leave the listeners with. Probably the main thing I would say is from an individual personal resilience point of view, um, treat yourself as a priority and really work on what's going to improve your quality of your life. Um, and then this has really been highlighted through the last 18 months and everything that the human race has been going through in this 18 months is that um, we really do need to do those things that are uh, looking ourselves, looking after ourselves at the core for now, but also for the long term. So doing things that are sustainably going to help our well-being. So that's my biggest message because I see so many people, they're so busy being parents and workers and, and friends and whatever else that that they and their own well-being becomes a, a a um, poor last a lot of the times in terms of priorities. So very much encourage people to, to turn that dynamic around because you really can't adequately and to your best do a lot of those things. So like your work, your parenting, whatever else, unless you're in a really good space in yourself. Everything that we, we've talked about, I would imagine 
are are things that you you discuss in your book would i be accurate on that probably not so much so the book is um it's written for um organizational leaders so your ceos and your c-suite leaders so cfos and cios and all those people so organizational leaders and it is it is an awareness piece on around what i see as the um biggest and most common cultural issues that that come up with case studies in there and, and examples so um it doesn't cover the full range of what i'm talking about i think that's probably about to go to give it justice that's probably about four books um which i'll probably get there eventually but not yet but this one in particular yeah it's it's a awareness piece for leaders around what are the biggest issues that occur in organizations and cultures um and to really get that insight to the to the point where they read it and go ah okay that applies to me um yeah and then and then take it from there so if anyone wants to to get hold of the book um if they go onto my website there's a um a book link there basically where they can find out more about it i i will have your website link um in the bottom of the show notes it's uh, jodywolkerlean.com backslash book hyphen order Yep, or they or they can just go jodywalkling.com and then there's a book button. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, great. That will be in the show notes. And um, Jody, thank you so much for for allowing me to interview you. This has been a really great conversation, and uh, I, I think it will serve the audience well um, moving forward. So, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, Dave. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, Please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.